First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. And before we go into verses 12 through 13, I want to begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this morning where we can gather for worship. I pray, God, that we would be instructed by your Holy Spirit now. We want to just open ourselves up to you and have you speak to our hearts. God, use your word. You've promised that it's powerful and potent and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, let it cut within our soul and spirit, joint and marrow. God, give us life by your truth. Illumine our minds by your spirit and just energize our hearts, God, as we need you and we bow before you as willing listeners to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. When I read and meditated upon these two verses that we just come to in the exposition here, one word came to mind, and that is the word synergism. Synergism. It's a theological term. It's also a term that's used in the business world uh, to be synergistic or uh, synergism. It means to be working together. It comes from two parts of a Greek word, the word sign, which means together, and then the word erg from ergon, which is to work. It's working together. And when I thought of uh, several different settings where synergism is important, one came to mind right off the bat, and that is in the sport of, let's say, football, for instance. I mean, some of us might be thinking about football today, the Super Bowl, but, you know, it's very important for coaches and players to be working synergistically. You've got plays that are being called in and players that have to respond, teammates that have to work together in synergy You've got that in fine arts as well. You've got a a, a director, a conductor who conducts with an orchestra. You have instrumentalists that need to play in concert with each other. They need to be synergized. You have dancers. One leads and one follows. And when they are working in harmony together, there's a beautiful effect. In government, three branches. You've got the legislative, judicial, executive branches. And when they are working in harmony, in synergy, that's a good thing. Companies, CEOs working with employees, families working together. You've got husbands and wives and parents and children. And when you have a holy, harmonious household, beautiful things come from that. There's much fruit to be gained in synergy. It's defined in this way. It's two or more agents working together to produce a result not obtainable by any of the agents independently. Put biblically... The church is not made up of independent people, but people who are dependent upon each other. We are interdependent upon each other. We are woven and knit together as the body of Christ. And some are shepherds and some are the flock. But both must move towards each other for there to be synergy. And what greater place to have synergy than the local church? The local church. It's very important. The key phrase here is at the end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. 
The yourselves word is a reflexive pronoun and it's the idea that you've got leaders and you've got followers, you've got the flock or the congregation moving towards each other, working together. Leaders working with the congregation, the congregation working with leaders, reflecting love and unity and peace back to each other. That's what this phrase encompasses. It, it goes after both sides of the equation. Leaders and the congregation. The effort needs to be made all around. Ephesians 4.3 puts it this way. The body should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's effort there. Romans 12.18. If, and I love this verse, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So to the degree that you can make peace, that you can be, as Jesus put it, a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. To the degree that you can work to that end, there's going to be great and wonderful blessing. The opposite of peace is strife and discord. You know, we don't even recognize that we are living in peace until something comes up, right? Peace is so easy to take for granted. You're just going along and, you know, living for this and what fast food restaurant are we going to pick or this and that. Then all of a sudden when, when lightning strikes and there's strife and there's a, a satanic in inside the church or inside of a family, you know it, right? Then all of a sudden peace is everything. I think Satan, he tries to destroy churches from the inside out, oftentimes going after the leaders of the church. And these seeds of discord can create such an incredible drain on the flock, can it? The emotional drain that comes into trying to repair and reconcile is very, very difficult. And oftentimes, when there is discord sown amongst a flock, the flock can become off mission. It can lose its focus in gospel outreach. It's a shared responsibility, though, and it's our opportunity as a leadership and as a flock to take steps toward each other. These verses, 12 through the end of the chapter, is Paul's crescendo for this letter. This is where he's landing the plane and ending this epistle with rapid-fire commands for the flock. They're given in staccato-like fashion, just one after the other. But what Paul does is he strategically starts with a command that encompasses the leadership and the flock together. He's working from the top down. He's going after the leadership and making that as strong of a foundation as possible for this church. This is a flagship church. Though it's in its, it's, in its infant stage... It's a new church. It's got a great reputation, and Paul wants it to be protected. And so he, he loads, he front loads these commands with one dealing with leaders and the flock. And he's calling for the flock, first of all, to respect those who labor among them. This is the exact place that he is supposed to begin. Now, if you're looking for an outline header, it's peace, taking steps toward each other. Now, there are Kind of two steps that are taken, one from the flock and the other one from the shepherds. The first that he mentions is a step that needs to be taken by the flock, and that is to respect God's design. Respect God's design. The reason, the reason I put it this way is simply this. Leaders are sinners. We all have feet of clay. We all know our own sin intimately. And so when you are 
looking at verses like these that are commanding the flock to give their respect to leadership, you need to do it in a God-centered way. You need to say, look, God set up eldership and pastors, and that was his design. It's not based out of church tradition. It was the structure that God put in place that would benefit us as a body. And so it's respecting God's design. It's looking at God's template for leadership, the way he set it up. Leaders uh, here are left generic in verse 12. He says to respect those. He doesn't say respect your elders, pastors, your overseers. I mean, that really is one office in the church, the elder, pastor, overseer. It's one person. And he's leaving it generic, assuming that The Thessalonians understand that the pastors and elders that are put in place are those he's talking about. They would have been people in who were part of the lower strata of society, as one commentator put it, because this was an infant church in kind of a commercial town. And so these were probably some blue collar workers coming in, doing their best, and they were going to be not really having a whole lot of tact at this point in their ministry. They were learning the ropes. It's an infant church. But nevertheless, Paul is saying, look, these are your men. The not many mighty and not many noble. Just think of the the disciples that followed Jesus, those fishermen. It's like, here are your leaders. Respect these men. To be clear, the, the word respect here is not some sort of yes man respect. It's not like a military respect where you're just respecting the office alone. The word respect is actually the idea of getting to know a person. It's, it's having to do with moving towards a person in intimate love and affection. It's where you know a person. That's what the word respect here means. It's to understand somebody or perceive things about them. It's drawing near to people. And you might know that it's very difficult and often dangerous to try to build respect for someone from a distance. The more that you can draw near to somebody, the more you'll be able to know why they do what they do. What are their motives? What what are their heart's desires? You know, what's burning on their hearts? And the more that you understand a person's heart as a leader, the better you will be able to discern who they are and the more you'll be able to love them. Otherwise, if you're kind of watching a leader lead from a distance, that can become discouraging or you can begin to, to try to put them on a, on a performance-based evaluation instead of getting to know them personally. It's easy to get the wrong impression. If they do something you didn't want them to do, it doesn't meet your preference, it wasn't your desire for the church, you wish they wouldn't have done it this way. If you're not already loving them and within a relationship with them, then it's hard to interpret why they did what they did. And it's easy to lose respect. And Paul is saying instead, draw near. Respect meaning get to know your leaders. You know, getting a cup of coffee, which I like coffee, and uh, this is no conflict of interest here, but going out for coffee with a pastor or an elder, especially one that you don't know very well, someone who's not in your normal sphere and flow of life, if you go out with them and you don't have a real agenda, that can go a long way towards peace being built within the church because you love you'll grow in a loving friendship with that leader so important to know what a leader is doing and what is the fruit of their ministry 
Paul is saying here, look, respect those who do things, who labor among you. The idea here is to learn about what an elder or a pastor is pouring his life into. What is he laboring to do? In what ways has he sacrificed for the church, even behind the scenes? Now, you know, we're not supposed to to parade around things that we do, whether we're doing things within the flock or as leaders. But if you go in a one-on-one sort of intimate way, you can learn a lot about what people are doing that you might not know about otherwise. I was thinking about Steve Pauls and his home group that he leads on Sunday evenings. You know, if you don't know about that, it's a wonderful group at his house. And and just if you begin to talk to him and dialogue with him about the things that are on he and Janet's hearts concerning that, or, or Dave Parker and Cal Dunham, how they work with the Missions Commission and other leaders in that group, uh, just to get to know those men and understand their heart for mission. Uh, that, that's an incredible investment of your time to learn about missions in our church. So all kinds of examples. I thought of uh, Cal Dunham. He goes to Vietnam from time to time with a uh, parachurch group called Vets with a Mission. Just to learn about those people that he's ministering to is a great investment. So you want to know what your leaders do. So you respect them for what they do and not just respect them for their personalities. Because you're going to automatically click with certain leaders, certain shepherds, and you might not click with certain other ones, but that's no reason not to meet with and get to know all of them. If you don't get to know all of your leaders, let me tell you what trap you'll fall into. It's the Corinthian trap. It's the 1 Corinthians 12 through 13 thing where Paul was saying, What I mean is that each one of you says, quote, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter, or I follow Christ. What does Paul say? He says very potent words. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he goes on to say, look, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. You know, Gaius did that, and this other guy, I'm glad I didn't do that. So you can't put me up on a pedestal, and we don't want to do that. You've got to approach your leaders corporately and get to know all of them and all of their various gift mixes and personalities. It's very important to do for peace. So you also not only need to get to know them and know what they do, but you need to know, uh, know how they lead how do they lead? It says, respect those who labor among you and are over you. And are over you. You know, they're laboring among you. That, in the original language, by the way, is the word kapiao. It's laboring to the point of exhaustion. It's laboring to the point of exhaustion. It's being able to do physical labor to free up the ministry. Let's say, what does that look like? Well, in a, in a missions context, Paul showed up and he was a tent maker and he was doing everything he could do to free up his ministry in the word. He, he didn't want to be a burden on this new church. They weren't financially set yet. They were still organizing the ministry. And so he was coming there as a tent maker and he was ministering alongside this flock. It reminds me of two missionaries that I know of from my church I came from. Their names are Aaron and Lindsay Hefner. And they are in West Senegal, Africa, ministering the word of God to tribal people who have never heard the gospel whatsoever. 
So when they begin teaching from Genesis and go on, that's their first encounter with who God is as creator. They're, these tribes are completely um, you know, enmeshed in animism and they're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And he moves from creation to Christ in his teaching. Well, Aaron and Lindsay had to learn the language because all the different tribes speak different dialects, and so it's a very difficult thing to learn the language. And in fact, they had to learn French first, going to Canada to learn French, so that they could then learn the language from speaking French. Talk about sacrifice. So they show up, and you know, Aaron's in his element. He's a rough and tough guy, and he's just a survivor, and they're setting up shop, and they've got a couple kids. And so what he does is he digs a well so he can have water. You know, I'm getting the pictures, you know, coming into my mind about what that looked like. You know, he's just digging a hole into the ground um, to get water. And I'm sure he had water coming there, but ultimately wanted to live like the rest of the tribe. And so you, you dig your well, and that's what he did. And so then he wanted to plant the field and grow the rice and eat the rice just like everybody else. But he being an American, he decided to upgrade his technology a little bit. He bought a donkey. Yeah, seriously, I mean, that was an upgrade. So nobody had that. So he, he bought the donkey, and the donkey helped him plow the field. And donkeys were so rare around that area for one reason or the other, some lady saw the donkey and ran out screaming out into the woods because she thought the donkey was going to attack her. First hour was afraid to laugh at the two. It was really kind of funny to hear about. But all that to say, it's okay. You know, after about six months of laboring among this group, doing favors for people, building relationships, then he began to open the word of God. That's what this is like here. It's laboring among the flock. It's doing the behind-the-scenes things, the intangibles. It's setting up, tearing down. It's, it's being willing to, to sacrifice and serve people's needs. I know that for many of you, you've come um, by and served me. And not that I deserve it, but you have taken steps towards me and labored among me to free me up and and help me in so many um, manifold ways that it is humbling even to think about. The leaders have done things for me and the flock. And it's an incredible blessing. And this is what leadership is called to do. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul said, For you remember, brothers, our labor, same word, our toil, we work night and day and we, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul's motive was pure. He just wanted to free himself to minister the word of God so that the mission could move ahead. So it's incumbent upon you as a flock to get to know your leaders get to know their labors, and then also to get to know how they lead. And that's in the phrase, the ones who are over you in verse 12. Now the idea of being over a flock could convey the wrong idea. One of the titles for a pastor is episkopos, which is where we get the Episcopal Church title and denomination. But it's really just the word for being an overseer. This is a different word, though. The idea of being over here is to stand in front of the congregation. And it's the idea of nurturing the congregation as a leader. You're a manager, someone who is seeing the needs of the congregation and not leading with a heavy hand or a heavy burden, but wanting to take the burden of the congregation and put it on the back of the leader. And the leader would say, wow, I have this burden and I wouldn't want it any other way. That's a real leader. You're not heavy handed. You're taking the burden on yourself and you're saying, man, I love to do this. I am flowing. 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm just flowing along within my giftedness, living leadership out. First Peter 5 put it this way. Peter said, look, verses 1 to 5, I exhort the elders, plural, it's several of them, among you as a fellow elder. By the way, I missed this point earlier, but eldership is always plural. God's design for the church is always to have a group of elders. You know, in the, in the context of, of counseling, you find wisdom in the multitude of counselors. And that's the way God designed leadership in the church, is to have a multiple, multiplicity of elders, to have several men gathered around. In Acts chapter 14, Paul said, I, I went to every city and appointed elders there. In Titus 1.5, Paul said, listen, I left you, Titus, on Crete for a specific purpose. And that was the purpose that you would appoint elders in every city. So he's saying, we stand before you. That's what the leaders do. They're the ones who are over you to manage, to care for, to engage. Not dictators, but shepherds, but pastors. And then, not only do they labor and they lead, but thirdly, at the end of verse 12, they admonish. They admonish. Now, this is the word that represents the heavy lifting of a pastor. To admonish. This is the word that probably deters most people from entering into a leadership realm. Because to admonish somebody is to tell somebody something based on the word of God that they usually don't want to hear. It's correcting, it's, it's reframing a person's mindset about their life or about their life choices. Admonishment. It's the word nuthateo. It comes from the Greek word nous, which means mind. And it's the idea of putting or placing the word of God into the mind of somebody else. You're, you're wanting to refocus their thinking. It's, it's where you want a person to think biblically. As one commentator put it, he said, look, the verb, admonish, is a Pauline verb. And while its tone is brotherly, it's big brotherly. So it's where you come to somebody in humility, in love, in gentleness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you tell them something that they don't necessarily want to hear with the word of God in a straightforward way. It's doing the hard stuff. You probably can think back in your own experience about times when you've been admonished and corrected and when you've corrected other people. This is not just something that's for the leaders. If you look at verse 14 next week, we're going to show you how the whole church is supposed to admonish the unruly or admonish the idle. It's, it's a collective call where we're all competent to admonish is what Romans chapter 15 says. Paul said it this way as his banner statement. He said, him we, we proclaim, Colossians 1.28, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What was Paul's life mantra? What was his goal in life? It was to take the word of God and proclaim Jesus and then go to people and admonish them and to help them to think biblically. Why? So that at the end of his life, he could have admonished people and brought them and present them to a place where they are mature in Christ. This is how Paul lived it out. Look at Acts chapter 20. 
This is how he lived it out. You can see it in his testimony in Acts chapter 20. He was at the end of his third missionary journey and he went to a place called Miletus, which is a a port area, port city. And he called the elders from Ephesus to come down several miles to Miletus to meet with him. And he was getting ready to go to Jerusalem and the prophet Agabus in the book of Acts had said, look, your hands are going to be chained together. You're going to be bound and you're going to be taken to prison. And so Paul knew that soon he was going to go to Jerusalem and then ultimately end up in Roman imprisonment to be executed. So this was going to be his last conversation he had with these elders. Paul, who had established the church at Ephesus, wanted to encourage them. So he called them to be together with him one more time. And he said in verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. And then he admonished them. Look at verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit was made, has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Right there, you see, he's, he's showing that they are overseers and that they're men who are called to protect and care for the church. And he's warning them and saying that there's going to be wolves that are come, going to come in among them, not sparing the flock, verse 29, and they're going to speak twisted things. They're going to take scripture and twist it and mess it up. Why? So that they can cover sin. If you've ever wondered why people teach false doctrine, they do it so they can create scriptural twisted ways to excuse sin. It always goes hand in hand. And what's the answer for this? The answer is to admonish these people. Verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. It's the word nutheteo. He used the word of God to untwist the thinking of the church. And he was warning that, look, wolves are going to come in. I mean, what do you do with a wolf in Alaska? You shoot it, right? Well, anyway, you guys have to give me some feedback, right? I mean, anyway, all right. So so, what he's saying is he would go in with the flock and for night and day for three years crying with them, having a heart on the table with them, he would use the word of God to refocus the thinking of the flock. That was his ministry as a leader. What was his work ethic? Verse 33, coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He worked with his hands and ministered. And what was their response? Verse 37, this is the response that a person in the church will have towards someone else if that person corrects them in love and helps them with the word of God. It says, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. You know, have you ever taken the word of God and said the hard thing? Just where you're willing to open up the scripture and say, you know, I, I, I've seen this in your life. You, you've kind of had this pattern and, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about your parenting. I mean, now we're meddling, right? Or, or you know, I, the way you're interacting with your wife, I'm, can I just show you something from scripture, you know, that might be of help? Or this is what I've been praying for you about. Can we look at the word of God together? 
and you do it with your heart on the table, you're making yourself vulnerable to someone else so that they'll receive the word of God. And they realize that you're not doing it out of self-interest or out of a puffed up spirit. You're just opening the Bible to try to help bring someone along and to place the word of God into the mind of somebody else. Well, that's what Paul did for three years. And you know what these men did? They fell on him, embraced him, and kissed him. They loved him because Paul was used to change their lives. It's the call of a shepherd to use the word of God and to lay it on the line. Why? To bring harmony within the body, to change lives. And it's the call of the flock to do it as well, but that's next week. It's going to be the most difficult part of spiritual leadership. Because people are deluded by their sin. They put their defenses up and they don't want to hear the word of God. But that's why it's so vitally important to use the word of God. Because the word of God is the only thing that can break through a hardened heart. That's why I love the ministry of nuthetic counseling or biblical counseling. Now hear me when I say this. I agree with a lot of uh, you know, scientific studies that are done that can be very helpful where we can help people um, in their diet, in their sleeping habits, um, things that are systemic and otherwise. But I think as a pastor and as a church, we need to recognize first and foremost the sufficiency of Scripture. The Word of God is powerful and it is sufficient. 2 Peter 1 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The Word of God is sufficient. So often we get so scared to say anything to anybody, thinking, well, they'll never change. No ground can ever be made up in this person's life. Reconciliation cannot happen. You know what that is? That is a denial of the sufficiency and the power of the truth. You know the truth and the truth will set you free, Jesus said. It's the truth. It's the word of God. It's what opens people up. It happens. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So often it's important to start with the word of God and just try to clean the cup with somebody's life. You say, well, yeah, but you don't know this person. This person's so depressed, they can't even see straight. Well, just sit down with them and talk to them and open the word of God and just say, look, are you reading the truth? Are you reading the scripture? The Bible says to meditate on the word of God day and night. Can we just meditate for a little while? You say, but no, no, this person's so messed up. We're pe- That's so Sunday school. What are you talking about? No, no, the Bible says it's powerful. So you just meditate. Hey, can I rehearse with you 20 promises of God that I've written down? I-, I took some time and wrote down some promises from Scripture. Here's your copy of mine. Can we just read those together and begin to, to fill our hearts with hope and encouragement? And then pray Scripture with someone. And encourage them in the word of God, praying with them, opening the Bible. And just begin there before you look for other options. You might be surprised. I've seen so many people recover from things that are such complicated issues just by coming to the objective truth. So, we're supposed to respect God's design first and foremost... This is what 
promotes peace in the church. This is what creates synergy. You respect your leaders. You know them. You, you, you move towards them. You learn what leaders do. You esteem your leaders, thirdly, in love. Look at this at the beginning of verse 13. And esteem them very highly in love. Now, again, this can sound sort of man-centered and the idea of you're putting someone on a pedestal. And that's not what I'm talking about at all. This is respecting someone and esteeming them in love by choice. Again, understanding God's design. The men that are here at the church as pastors and elders, they are given to you as a gift from God. It's designed in the structure of First and Second Timothy and Titus. It's, it's reflected in the book of Acts as to how the church is supposed to be set up and designed. And in God's providence, he's given you shepherds. And these are men that you can choose to love. Not as in some sort of yes man, sort of aye aye captain, military approach. But you can love them as shepherds. Not worshiping people. Not naive, but being deliberate to open your heart up in affection to other people. The idea of very highly here in verse 13 is the idea of it being a superabundance of love. You know, it's so difficult to struggle with somebody when you're praying for them, when you're meeting with them one-on-one, when you're talking to them face-to-face, when you're expressing love to them and they're expressing love in kind, even if you disagree with preferential decisions that have been made or principled decisions that you disagree with, even if, even if you're there, if you've left room in your heart for love for people, it's really hard to struggle with them. And it really goes a long way towards promoting peace in the body, which is what is the design here for the church. And that's why Paul started here. He's saying, look, esteem them very highly in love. Just leave some room in your heart for love. It'll work wonders. All right, first step is for the flock to respect God's design. The second step is for the shepherds to earn their respect. It's a little bit of an interesting point here, a little different kind of title. It's supposed to wake us up. I mean, in one sense, I guess you may think that leaders would assume, well, I'm in the position, so God put me here, and so you need to respect me. But that really shouldn't be the disposition of a leader at all. A leader or a shepherd should feel the weight of accountability and responsibility that they're carrying because of the title, because of the position. It's a very weighty position to shepherd and care for people's souls. It's very weighty, and it should be. And it should be something where shepherds and leaders are earning their respect. Look at verse 13. Esteem them highly in love. Why? Because of their work. It's because of what they do. Now, the word work here is different than the word labor in verse 12. The word work here is gathering up the three descriptions of spiritual work in verse 12. A servant-hearted labor, secondly, a leadership where you're spiritually shepherding souls, and then thirdly, the leader who's willing to admonish the flock of God. And the congregation is to respect leaders because they've earned their respect by living out these qualities in the church. Spiritual work. You know, a clear case could be made that Spiritual labor, done rightly, is more physically and spiritually draining than physical labor. Physical labor is tough. 
Physical labor also can be redemptive and it can create health in your, your mindset and thinking. I mean, I've even shoveled some more snow since, since uh, you know, earlier on. I mean, it's, it's enjoyable to get out and, and sweat and do things and, and mix it up and, and get outside. But at the same time, the spiritual labor is vitally important and it can be incredibly draining to pour it on for people, to pray with people, to be there for people. It can be draining. To admonish, to say the hard thing, to be rejected. This is the kind of stuff that keeps the shepherds up at night. And they need to do these things. You need, as a shepherd, to, to pray for people. And, and when they, they don't like you anymore, and, and they're struggling with you, and you're up at night because of that, that's part of this kind of spiritual work. And it's necessary, and it's, it's crucial because it vindicates the work of a pastor. You know, I've seen the elders and the pastors of Anchorage Grace stay up late, study theology, be prepared, um, volunteer for more subcommittee meetings outside of the two regularly scheduled elders meetings. I've seen elders meetings go long. I've had elders meet with me personally, one-on-one in settings around town. I've prayed with these men. I pray with pastors as they come by my office. I meet with them individually. I mean, these men are praying for you. They're ministering to you. They're doing things behind the scenes. There's things that you know of and things you don't know of. And they are deserving of our respect. They've earned it. They've served self-sacrificially. You know, why do, why do pastors need to admonish? Why do they need to do this kind of thing? Well, I think it's because of a calling. Every elder and every pastor at our church senses a calling that rises up from within. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, I'll just say it quickly. Any person who aspires to the office of eldership it's a fine thing that they do. And that word aspire there is the word epithumia. It's also in other contexts in the Bible used for the word lust. It's the idea that a person who steps into a role as a leader has a burning, overwhelming compulsion to do it. And they can't see their life being spent in any other way. And so that's why they labor. That's why they lay it on the line. That's why they lead in this way, because God has called them to do it. You know, you as a congregation should be commended for your support, not only for the elders and the pastors, but you have supported me. And in a way that was done by faith, because in many ways you don't even know me yet. You're getting to know me. You're getting to know what I do and how I spend my time and my life. But you've served me and loved me in so many ways, and you've fulfilled these verses towards me, and I'm so grateful. And our family has had peace here in Anchorage because of your love that's been extended towards me, so thank you for that. And taking steps towards each other as leadership and as a congregation will bring synergy and will bring peace. And let me say this, to the degree that we take steps towards each other and we are working in synergy will be to the degree that we are able to go on mission and evangelize and reach people for Christ and draw people in and meet people's needs. This kind of synergy defines the health of the local church body. And I believe we have great potential 
that's still yet to be reached as a church as we grow starting here in the flock. All right, here's a couple take-home points. Number one, God, not church, tradition, designed eldership polity. God, not church tradition, designed eldership polity. Why do we have this leadership structure? Well, it was because God made it that way. Number two, why should I respect and esteem a fellow sinner? One reason, the gospel, the gospel. All of us have feet of clay and it's only by God's grace that we serve. Any one of us, whether in a leadership capacity or in a service opportunity in the flock. I heard one person say one time when he was being ordained, the person was asked, which qualification of being an elder do you struggle with most? The person said, by God's grace, none of them, but apart from, but apart from God's grace, all of them, every one of them. We all need grace. That's why anyone can serve. Number three, pursue biblical peace at all costs. It's worth sacrificing for. We should pursue peace. We should, we should want there to be harmony in the body. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. I have it up for the screen. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now watch this. This is kind of surprising language. Let them do this with joy. <laughs> like, like we're obeying, we're, we're submitting, and we're moving towards the, the uh, leadership. Why? Because we want them to be happy. Does that sound right to you? Well, it should, because if they're happy, what's going to happen? It's going to splash down on us. It says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It reminds me of the old, you know, down-home proverb, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? That's true. Well, if you, if you make the leadership happy in an appropriate way through being humble towards the leadership and, and, and teachable towards the leadership, and if you're filling their hearts with joy, then that's going to have a wonderful splashdown effect on the congregation. Number four, get to know your leaders by how they labor once not in your regular routine. Now, what do I mean by that? You say, well, look, I, you know, I click with this dude. I, I like to serve in this ministry and, and that person, you know, that person gets me and I get that person. And so I serve there. Well, that's fine. But now get outside your comfort zone and get with the person that you wouldn't normally click with and serve with that person or just get to know that person. And it will promote body life. It will promote affection for the leadership as a whole. You need to know how they shepherd, administrate where their hearts are. Number five, purpose to grow in your affection for leaders. And I've said a lot about this, but you should be praying for your leaders and opening your heart up towards them. You should. In a minute, we're going to be observing the Lord's table. It's a great opportunity to examine yourself and to say, man, do I struggle with a leader? I want to humble myself and say, Lord, allow me to obey this verse, verse 13, and grow in my affection and love towards my leaders. Number six, tell leaders what they've meant to you. Just about every note without exception that's been written to me as a pastor, I have in a file. Whether it was a kid with a crayon, <laughs> thank you, Pastor Cross. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter an email, anything. I've got it. Why? Because I need it. And every now and then I'll look into my file, I'll pull out a note and I'll read it 
And it's everything. It's, it means the world to me and it means the world to all of our leadership. Why? Because we're putting our heart out for you as a flock. And the flock, when it puts its heart out towards the leadership, there's an incredible wheel and cycle of synergy where the testimony blows the world away. And that's what we want to do. We want to stand as one family together before a watching world so we can influence people for Christ. Well, now we have the incredible privilege of turning to the Lord's table to examine our hearts and to think about the gospel. This is the only reason why we would want peace in our flock is because of the gospel. And so let's celebrate now the Lord's table. And I'm going to be turning to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as I lead us there. And what I would ask you to do is take a few moments and bow your heads and let's just have a few moments for examination together. <clears throat> 